Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and today I had the pleasure of interviewing David Robson. David is a senior journalist at the BBC. He writes in-depth features on medicine, psychology, and neuroscience for Atlantic, New Scientist, Mosaic, Aeon, and The Guardian. He's author of one of my most favorite books, The Intelligence Trap. Seriously, I dove through this book. I highlighted pretty much every single page, and it really took me on an in-depth journey into the mind and how smart people do dumb things, which is the byline of the intelligence trap. In this wonderful interview, we talk about a whole range of things based on the book and what we see in the world. We talk about evidence-based wisdom, the traps that smart people fall into, the big mind trap driving Brexit and other polarizing events around the world, and most importantly, what we can actually do to avoid these traps. We can think better, make better decisions, and live better in curiosity and awe and wonder at the world. It's a wide-ranging interview with tons of gold nuggets in it. I hope you like it. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for listening again. And uh, feel free to hit like and review the podcast. It really helps the show get spread around. And also, sharing is caring. So if you like this episode, please share it on all the socials. Thanks very much. Okay, let's get into it. So thrilled to have you on the podcast, David Robson, author of one of my most favorite books ever so far, The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. So welcome all the way from Spain, David. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I love this book. And Googling a little bit about you as you do when you cyberstalk people you want to talk to, <laughs> you've got a huge array of wonderful articles on your site and you've interviewed some of the most amazing people. What surprised you the most? What has surprised you the most in all of your interviews with crazy folk? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think for me, the one that really sticks with me is actually I interviewed these people who are like, um, they called themselves like real life vampires, which sounds like they're maybe just crazy people or like kind of fetishists or something like that. But actually, you know, that was my initial response. So these people actually drink human blood. They kind of, they have a donor and... Uh, okay, that's just weird, kind of, first of all. Like, that's yeah, that's just weird. Right, it totally is weird. You know, they use often like medical apparatus to extract the blood. It's not, you know, it's not really like a vampire, but they definitely do drink it. And I was like, why would someone do this? Like, what what's the motivation? But the deeper I dug, the more... I realized that actually they're quite vulnerable people who have all of these strange kind of um, symptoms that are difficult to explain by medicine. You know, probably some serious illnesses, they've got like irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, that kind of stuff that isn't really being served by medicine. And for some reason, they've settled on this as being one cure. Now, I don't believe it is a cure. I think it's more like the placebo effect. But, you know, I think they're desperately really looking for some explanation for their illness and some way of trying to treat it themselves and so I actually ended up feeling a lot of empathy for these people and really feeling that actually you know they shouldn't be mocked and they should almost not be taken seriously but that their needs should be more recognized by doctors to try to help them to um to find like a proper scientifically proven cure for their illnesses well it is yeah I think I mean 
to go, you must be at the end of your tether if you're extracting blood from other people and drinking it. I mean, that's not a normal thing to do. Right. And I love how you end with compassion for them because you must be really under a lot of stress and pressure if you're going to that ends. Um, and also, but to come to your final point about that we need to find a, a proven cure for your illnesses. Right. And I think sort of speaks to the undertone of your book itself, which is evidence-based wisdom. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So that's something that's been so important to me. Throughout my life really has been, you know, looking for kind of evidence for any any kind of actions that you do, you want it to be kind of rational. And so that's really the heart of this book as well, is looking at, you know, the concept of wisdom um, that's been around for millennia, like how can we live the best life possible? How can we behave in the best way possible? But then there's now this really exciting science behind this that has really tried to take the philosophical definitions and then look for the psychology of what actually can help us to take a wiser outlook on life. Um, and there's just so much great research. It's a really budding field now. A budding field on wisdom or on evidence-based wisdom? On evidence-based wisdom now. Yeah, the kind of scientific study of wisdom. So it's, it's setting up a little bit of a dichotomy in my mind, and maybe it's a false dichotomy about science versus philosophy or science versus spirituality. Mm. How does that play out in your mind? Like, is science your religion? Maybe that's not a fair question, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I'm not religious. I wouldn't say science is my religion because I don't think it. you have to have faith in science in the same way. You know, like I feel like any of the scientific ideas that I kind of believe now, I'd be happy to turn over if there was new evidence that um, came along that disputed that. And I think that's one of the joys of science. There's never, you never reach an end point. There's always something more that can come along that can change your opinion. So you always have that kind of curiosity and awe. Yeah, so I think that's how I would see science, not as a religion, but as something that definitely guides my life. It's interesting, though, because curiosity and awe is, is a reverence thing. It's a kind of a spiritual practice in itself, in some ways. So there's, there's yeah. twinges to, to what you're talking about. There's an emotional element to that. I don't think science has to be totally kind of dry or boring. Like, I think there is this kind of wonder of what science can explain that, um, that I guess maybe does serve the purpose that other people might also find in religion. I love it. So coming to the book then, why did you write this book? So I was, um, you know, I'm a science journalist and besides um, interviewing vampires, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also interviewed, you know, lots of brilliant scientists who have, you know, some of them have won Nobel Prizes, you know, they're like really the best minds around. But as I was doing that, I would also come across these stories of people who, you know, might have made like a great discovery, but also had these really really bizarre views. So my favourite is this guy, Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize for the polymerase chain reaction. So that's used in genetics, you know, it's really the foundation of all genetics research. So it's really like a such a seminal discovery that some people dis divide biology into two eras, kind of before and after Kerry Mullis, you know, uh, it's difficult to be more influential than that. But he you know, has had some really, really, I think, dangerous beliefs over his life. So he denied the link between the HIV virus and AIDS. Um, he also denied that humans are causing 
climate change, which the scientific consensus really shows that humans are causing climate change, but he denied that right up until his death. Um, he believed in kind of astrology and said that was a better, a much better predictor of human behavior than psychology. So he had all of these, what I think are kind of unscientific beliefs that just don't really look at the evidence rationally. And it was that kind of story that just made me start to think, well, how could someone so intelligent in one way also take such irrational beliefs in the other? And are they actually separate things? Is rationality and wisdom just different from intelligence? And what are the psychological mechanisms behind that? Um, so I kind of dug around and actually psychologists really are now asking that question, uh, partly with this new discipline that I mentioned, evidence-based wisdom. There's also a new really exciting new work on measuring rationality itself. Um, so there's like now a rationality quotient that's different from the intelligence quotient that looks at how well you can appraise evidence and come to the best possible decision based on the information you have at your disposal. And that doesn't correlate so well just with IQ itself, it's a separate entity. So it's really then looking at all of this psychology and realizing that actually there's this new story to tell about our mental capacities. And there's so many other skills that we can cultivate besides intelligence and besides the skills that are taught at school that could really help us in our lives. And I think that's an interesting question to pose. If we have a strong IQ, the rationality quotient that you describe as well doesn't necessarily come hand in glove with being an intelligent person. So you could be, as you, you know, as the example you gave, very intelligent person, lacking in some rationalizing capacity in some other areas. Um, does the rationality quotient correlate with any other types of intelligence? Right, so that's a really good point. So the rationality quotient itself correlates, you know, moderately with IQ, which is the kind of analytical intelligence that we've measured before. So, you know, like pattern recognition, that kind of raw brain power that you have, whereas the rationality quotient looks more specifically at these kind of cognitive biases that are now very famous, thanks to Daniel Kahneman. So things like the sunk cost bias, which is where you invest so much in a project initially that even when it starts failing you just you're so attached to your initial investment that you don't want to let go so you actually just end up spending even more money even more time trying to save that project more than you could possibly ever get back from it so it's that kind of of bias that's measured by the rationality equation Ooh, the, compared to it just, measures the biases as as well Yes. So that's what's wonderful about the rationality equation is it really looks at your susceptibility to those kinds of biases, which is a very different skill from the kind of pattern recognition that would be involved in the IQ test. And so you do see a moderate correlation. Eventually, when you look at the individual biases, especially, you see almost no correlation. So the sunk cost bias, for instance, is almost completely unrelated to your intelligence. That's an emotional one, right? That yeah, exactly. Cost, yeah, so you don't. You just won't want to give up because it's linked to your identity and and what you believe you should be produced. I had this same conversation with a client yesterday who is experiencing sunk cost bias at the moment, and it's causing her a lot of emotional drain because she has spent years working on this project and it's not coming to fruition. Yeah. So that's what I think. That's what I think is interesting to me is that you might expect that someone who's more intelligent, you know, traditionally, to just be slightly better at moderating 
those biases. But actually, you find that that's really not necessarily the case at all. And so the researcher who came up with this rationality equation, he coined this term disrationalia to describe someone who is very intelligent, but also very irrational. Um, and it's not just the sunk cost bias, there's also things like framing, you know, the way like advertising is kind of worded can really change your perception of something like a statistic, uh, even if it's, um, even if, you know, it doesn't actually change the meaning at all. So it's why we say something is 95% fat free rather than 5% fat, because emphasizing the, the fact it's fat free kind of somehow makes it feel a lot healthier. So, and again, you see with framing, uh, people who are very intelligent can also be very susceptible to that kind of bias. So that's, I just think that's a, a really important finding is to realize that you might have done amazingly well at school, you might have, you know, a PhD, but you could still be very irrational in all of these other areas, other ways of measuring decision making, and that that could affect your life in, in all kinds of ways and, and professionally and personally. I'm wondering, and it might be implied in your book, but you, you might be able to make it explicit or comment on this. Do you think that emotional intelligence is the bridge between IQ and rational quotient? Mm. Do you think that's one of the things that can help you become more rational is that sort of emotional mastery? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely think that's important, like you said, for the sunk cost bias, where it's kind of like regulating those feelings of disappointment and frustration and kind of separating it from your identity. Similarly, with things like framing, actually, there are some studies showing that, um, you know, things like mindfulness meditation actually can help you to become more resilient to biases like framing or anchoring or all of these things. And it seems in a way that just by mastering your emotions just a little bit, you can just feel a bit more detached and it just gives you that space to think about the information you're consuming uh, more deliberatively and less intuitively. And that helps you to be more logical in your decisions. So absolutely, I think that the kind of uh, measures that we're kind of traditionally associated just with maybe managing your emotions for your relationships actually helps your decision making in loads of other ways because you're you're avoiding the kind of intuitive emotional aspect of the decision making. You write about intuition in the book and how it can take you off course and how you can rein it back with what you call an emotional compass. Can you explain a little bit about how intuition can be, well, a load of hogswash <laughs> or it can lead you off course? It's probably a more gentle way of saying it because I, I used to rely heavily on intuition and, and teach trust your intuition. And having read your book, I'm like, hmm, maybe not. So tell me about why you discount or disparage a little bit intuition. Yeah, because I would say intuition actually can be really helpful, but you don't want it to be the only thing that's guiding your decisions. You kind of want to be analytical about your own intuition. And so the problem really is that um, when we're intuitive, you know, we tend to rely on these kind of heuristics. It leaves us open to the all of the biases that I've just mentioned, and also to all of these other kind of affective biases as well, not just the cognitive biases, but um, things like whether it's sunny outside can really affect your decision-making quite a lot, they found. So if you're hiring a new employee and it's raining, you're much more likely to give the new employee a much lower rating than if it's sunny outside. That's so depressing, isn't it? Because we have no control over the weather. Um, right, exactly. And you know, you see the same in stock markets change. 
based on like whether a country wins or loses the World Cup. And again, you know, these investments shouldn't be connected to that, but it's just the way people are feeling is affecting their investment decisions. And the problem here is that if you're relying just on your intuition and you're not aware of those emotional, other emotional factors that might be shaping your decisions, they just kind of sway you. It's like a kind of current in the sea kind of moving a boat, but the current is kind of so deep you don't even notice that it's dragging you off course. And that's why I think you should really cultivate this kind of emotional compass that I talk about which involves this awareness of your emotions. So you have to be, first of all, aware of the kind of bodily signals that show that you're feeling an emotion. And some people just aren't very good at actually reading those signals or noticing them, but you can train that ability. And then you also have to be able to label and identify those emotions. So, you know, some people, they might feel very agitated, but they don't know whether that agitation is happiness or excitement or or, you know, anger even, they kind of confuse them all. They're like a big miasma, a big mess. Whereas other people are very precise in the way they label their emotions. And um, there've been great studies showing that actually that ability to label your emotions does help your decision-making in all kinds of areas that we wouldn't have previously expected. So investors who have greater emotion differentiation, as we call it, actually do make uh, bigger profits over the course of a month or a year just because they're able to pinpoint the emotional factors that might be swaying their decisions. And by pinpointing them, they can start to account for them. And, you know, maybe they would realize, oh, I feel happy because it's such a glorious day outside. And they can separate that kind of happiness from the optimism that they might be feeling about a particular investment. So that's very important. And then the third part of the emotional compass is regulation. So that's just having the effective strategies to help to turn down those kinds of feelings that could be really leading you astray. So things like disappointment in the sunk cost bias, for instance, or, you know, when an investor has made a big loss, the temptation is just to try to go back in and kind of win it all back. And that can lead to rash decision-making. So you need to find ways to kind of regulate and control those emotions. And together, those three things, the awareness, differentiation, and regulation, if you have all three, then actually you're decision-making is going to be a lot stronger and you can still feel your intuition strongly and you can still be guided by them, but you can just think about them in a little bit more of an analytical manner. So they can be one important piece of information, but they're not going to lead you astray because you also have the kind of greater analytical capacity to, to weigh up like what might be changing your decisions. I loved it. And I love this emotional compass um, part of your book, because throughout the first part of the book, I was like, oh, this is so depressing. The brain is useless. <laughs> and then we get to this point. I'm like, oh, no, not emotions. They're useless. And then, oh, yes, they have a point yeah. to them. And we can actually look after them, which is great. And you'll be uplifted, maybe, as I was, by this incident that happened to me last week. I was running behind a couple of women in my running group. And one of them is a counselor in, in schools. And she was talking about her conversation with one of her young students who came in and she said, he sat down and he said, today I'm feeling frustrated with a tinge of disdain. Oh, and went that's on to amazing. Explain. I know. I'm like, she goes, boy, I'm, I've been lucky to get previously out of many of my students. I, I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is exactly the kind of thing that, you know, I think we should be teaching children at schools 
is to be able to make that kind of distinction and to to be able to feel all of and label all of the different colors of your emotions in that way. Yes, I absolutely agree. So I think my little ear into that world of, of education made me feel happy because I'm like, it's happening. The younger generation is learning about emotional differentiation and emotional control. Like it's a lot more in the mainstream media and discussion to talk about emotions and how we deal with them than it ever was when I was growing up. So there is hope potentially for, for this moving forward. Yeah, that's definitely my impression. And, you know, and we actually now know that um, by teaching those kinds of skills in schools, it actually, it doesn't just improve decision making, it actually improves the way they learn up a subject. So it's really a great investment for a small amount of time that can improve a child's whole academic record. Yeah, it's a long lasting skill that will help enormously. So biases, we were talking just before we hit record about uh, the fact that you've you've left Britain temporarily, maybe, right. yeah. <laughs> to enjoy Spain while you can uh, before the advent, if the advent of Brexit occurs. Looking at Brexit, uh, I'm curious now, what biases do you see at play, if any? Um, can you do that? Can you read biases into the play of the political landscape? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so one of the kind of big drivers, I think, of the intelligence trap is this process called motivated reasoning. So it's a bit like confirmation bias in that it's where you kind of apply your brain power to prove your point and to rationalize your point and to demolish any evidence that might contradict your point of view. And it's very much tied to our identities, like we mentioned also with the sunk cost bias, but this is very true with motivated reasoning as well. So any political belief that might be tied to your broader identity kind of triggers that motivated reasoning when something threatens it. And the, the especially bad thing there is that actually the more intelligent you are, the better your motivated reasoning, because you have the kind of numeracy and literacy and knowledge to make a stronger case for yourself and to kind of find the loopholes in your opponent's argument. So what you see because of motivated reasoning is that it actually produces greater polarization between people of opposing beliefs. And the more intelligent you are, the more polarized you are. So you can definitely see that in all kinds of issues like climate change. But I just, you know, having observed Brexit now for three years, is that I really feel like motivated reasoning is the number one driver of the kind of discord that we see in the UK at the moment. You know, you have so many intelligent people, I think people who are actually in other ways quite rational people who want the best for the country, but they just can't see eye to eye because of this motivated reasoning. And it's just preventing the possibility of any kind of compromise between them. And as time goes on, because of this motivated reasoning kind of self-perpetuating, they're just being driven further and further apart. So that that was very interesting to me, also a little bit heartbreaking, I think, but having written the book and, you know, also through the process of writing the book to see this at play in our country, you know, that really struck me uh, it showed me how powerful this understanding of the psychology could be, because you would hope that with this greater understanding, you could also find ways to reduce that motivated reasoning and to bring people together again. And you do. You you talk about one of, I think it was Socrates. Was it Socrates who talked about arguing the other side's case as a way of unplugging from motivated reasoning? Was that Socrates or a different? Yeah. Well, it's very much part of Socrates' overall kind of worldview, I think. But also Benjamin Franklin had this idea of using 
moral algebra, he called it, where he would deliberately kind of list all of the reasons that there might be for having the alternative point of view. And, that you know, he took a very, I'd say, analytical and detached approach to that process as well. He would do it over a matter of days or weeks to kind of let it settle in his mind before he came to a decision. And absolutely, to consider the opposite doesn't just mean kind of listing the the kind of reasons against your point of view. It's also when you're analysing a particular piece of evidence, it means kind of trying to look at that from the other person's perspective. So if I were to read, it's pretty obvious that I would want to remain in the EU. But if I read an, an article by someone who wanted to leave the EU and they presented all of this evidence, I should really be asking myself, how would I see that evidence, the quality of that evidence, if it actually, rather than disagreed with my point of view, protected my point of view? Am I just being unfairly dismissive of it because it opposes my worldview? And that could maybe stop you from that having that kind of instant gut reaction that you'll just like tear apart the argument and you might actually think well yeah you know they're raising some decent points they're quoting some decent studies that actually do represent some valid evidence so it's really that kind of mindset that I think you want it's it's kind of trying to see the other viewpoint and view all of the evidence through that other viewpoint temporarily to just try to overcome that motivated reasoning. I think it, so what you're describing is the core premise of evidence-based wisdom is that it's default to assessing the quality of the evidence to assess the quality of the argument. Mm. And that's different to then yeah. asking yourself, do I resonate with that? Where are they coming from? What's their worldview? Uh, which is probably where I default to, you know, how are they thinking about themselves in the world that would generate that perspective as opposed to what is the evidence that they're putting forward? Yeah, that's exactly clear. And to try to step into their shoes and think, well, why is that? evidence convincing to them and you know am I unfairly dismissing it just because it doesn't fit with what I want to believe that's really what you're trying to get at there. this is a really important point and it's showing not just in Brexit but in American politics and in Australian politics as well and actually probably in a lot of nations around the world where you have factions that are getting further and further apart because they attach so much emotional energy and identity to these reasonings uh, and not, as you say, evidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you do see it across the world. And, you know, the thing that I find interesting is our intelligence has actually increased over the last 80 years. Our IQs, IQs have risen by about 30 points. But in a way, I feel like we're just applying that reasoning in just as kind of um, biased and prejudiced kind of ways as we ever did. We're just applying that intelligence to drive people further and further apart. And that's why we need evidence-based wisdom to help us apply that intelligence more wisely, more fairly, so that we can actually look at the evidence on something like climate change and together come to some kind of consensus on that issue. I think there's possibly one other aspect that can help move us towards a more inclusive society. And it's not just evidence-based wisdom, it's actually a more inclusive worldview. And I just interviewed um, Cindy Wigglesworth, who wrote SQ21, the 21 skills of spiritual intelligence. If you haven't come across it, it's worth reading. Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And she describes real spiritual intelligence as essentially advanced emotional intelligence. And so the capacity to see oneself as part of a greater whole and how to see ourselves as linked as one a global economic environmental system is what we need to have wise and compassionate leadership. 
And I think that element combined with evidence-based wisdom is a powerful force. And they would probably diminish or minimize the divisions that we're experiencing because of motivated reasoning. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's the kind of other element of kind of overcoming motivated reasoning is to kind of try to understand the common ground and like what you and the people who you think of as like your enemies or your opponents, but actually to just recognize that you're all basically want the best for your country. And you might have like fundamentally different ideas about how to achieve that, but it's still recognizing the fact that they're coming from a good place, hopefully. And that's something that I just think we're forgetting now. And we're looking at these people as if they are a serious threat to us. And actually, you should we should maybe be trying to just look for what our shared values are. And as you come to that kind of agreement, you'll find that things like motivated reasoning might decrease so that you can come to that kind of compromise. Mm. It's so much easier just to demonize the people who disagree with us. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a lot easier. And actually, with things like social media, you know, you get a lot of social cachet from demonizing the people that disagree with you, because, you know, I think Twitter kind of thrives on outrage, and it's easy to score points in that way. But actually, we need to look beyond that to actually kind of solve these big global issues. Yeah, I've, I'm hoping that that's diminishing. I don't find too many people who get excited by outrage. But then again, who knows, maybe I'm biased or blind to that part of things. Uh, I do want to ask you about something you wrote in the book, which the taxonomy is hilarious. Or maybe I think you called it, it was you who called this, and correct me if I'm wrong, pseudo profound bullshit, uh, <laughs> to yeah. be mindful of this as a bias. <laughs> yeah. Um, explain what you mean by, by pseudo profound bullshit, and then I'll ask you about Deepak Chopra. Sure. So that was actually coined by um, the uh, scientist Gordon Pennycook, but it is a fantastic term. And so that is these, uh, where you have these kind of phrases that are often shared on, you know, it uh, might be shared on Facebook or Twitter, you know, maybe with this picture of a sunset or something. And it, it could sound quite profound, but it would be, actually, when you look at the words themselves, they don't really, there's no message behind the sentence i'm trying to think of a good example uh yeah i can't remember one off the top of my head i think it was something you said intention and attention are the sum of manifestation or something to that yeah, effect that's, that's exactly it and so you know you could just read that and if you're not really thinking very deeply about it you think oh that's a really nice sentiment you know that's quite profound that's quite meaningful but then you actually interrogate it and it's like there's no it's just a collection of words rather than actually conveying anything meaningful but lots of people do rate those messages quite highly and they're very very well shared on Facebook and Twitter so this scientist Gordon Pennycook wanted to understand why is that and is that a similar phenomenon to fake news and other kinds of misinformation well pseudo profound bullshit actually makes you feel good <laughs> Yeah. The, the lovely sunset and the nice words. <laughs> yeah, it serves some kind of purpose, I guess. Um, yeah, and his research was uh, very interesting in that it did show that actually the kinds of people who are susceptible to fake news are also susceptible to pseudo-profound bullshit. And it's because they lack this what's termed cognitive reflection. And it's really that kind of slight emotional detachment that we've spoken about before. They just go with the intuitive gut feeling of whether something makes sense, whether fake news fits with their worldview or whether this pseudo profound bullshit, you know, 
feels motivating, but they don't really interrogate it. They don't really stop to question that intuition and to actually look at the facts. So I found that, you know, it's a lovely term, but I also just like the idea that actually for all kinds of misinformation, the kind of motivational, happy stuff and the kind of dangerous fake news, that there's this kind of common process behind them all and that we can measure that with this test, the cognitive reflection test. Which is separate to the rational quotient test. Right, exactly. Although it does predict how well you do on the rationality quotient as well. Oh, does it? Um, it does. So they're very related in a way. But I think the cognitive reflection test really gets to the core of the processes that can drive this and how that differs from intelligence. Can anybody rock up and can anybody get access to the cognitive reflection test? Yeah, so it should be freely available online. But actually, one of my the favorite questions that I ask all my friends and they just... Um, always fail it is how many individuals of each species did Moses take on the ark and everyone says two um, when actually obviously it was Noah's ark so the answer is zero it wasn't Moses's ark that's what we mean by the cognitive reflection it's that you you know the gist of that sentence how many um, of each animal did Moses take on the ark kind of feels like it makes sense because you know, we know Moses is in the Bible, we know Noah's in the Bible. You don't really like think carefully about the specific words that are being used. But you know, people with a good cognitive reflection, they do just do that extra bit of analysis. And what you find is that if you have a high IQ, you are a bit more likely to have better cognitive reflection. But lots of people with high IQs also lack cognitive reflection because they rely too much on their gut instincts and intuitions. So they have the capacity for intelligent reflective thinking, but they just don't use it. And that's why even intelligent people can fall for things like misinformation or pseudo profound bullshit, or also the biases in the rationality quotient, because even though they, they can think analytically, they're just a bit too lazy to actually do that when they don't really have to, when there's not an actual exam in front of them that they're really trying to apply themselves for. So. So I think that to me was one of the core findings for understanding the intelligence trap and why smart people do dumb things. It was this fact that you can have the intelligence, but you just don't apply it. And actually that has very wide ranging implications. One of the most important points you made in the book was the need for intellectual humility. And that was, mm. again, one of Socrates' principles. And I think that goes to the core of the intellectual laziness brought about by intellectual arrogance. So if you're smart and you know a lot of things and you've had a lot of success in your career, you're more likely to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. And you get hooked up, you know, all of a sudden you're saying that Moses led the ark and when it was Noah. That actually makes me think about, so there's so many important points that you make in your book. What, if any, is a keystone skill or strategy to help avoid a lot of these intelligence traps yeah i mean i think like intellectual humility like you just mentioned would be incredibly important to cultivate so you know just always kind of questioning how much do i actually know on this subject and how much am i basing my kind of perceptions of my own knowledge maybe on an education that happened 10 20 30 years ago rather than you know, actually updating it now. So always just questioning whether you might be wrong, whether there's more information that you need to find out before you come to a belief and to always be open to that other evidence. Um, and we know that, um, you know, intellectual humility is this kind of spectrum. 
people are reliably more arrogant or less arrogant, more humble or less humble, and that you can move along that scale with kind of effort and determination. So I'd say that is one important element. I'd also say the consider the opposite strategy that we just spoke about is also a really good way of kind of practicing that intellectual humility and putting it to the test. So I would always say, whatever you're looking at, whatever decision you're making, just take that time to just stop and think about why you might be wrong, what the alternative point of view might be, what the evidence for that alternative point of view might be, and what further information you might need to prove your own view and disprove the other view and vice versa. So I think that's absolutely essential. Things like the emotion differentiation that we spoke about can be cultivated. It seems quite easily, suspending just maybe 10 minutes each day, kind of probing how you're feeling and really questioning what those emotions are and trying to find the most precise labels possible. That should have knock-on effects for your decision-making in lots of other areas later on. It's a kind of skill that once you get into that mindset, you find yourself applying very naturally when you're making a decision too. So just a bit of practice in that can be really helpful. I would say that all of that together really would be my top tips for kind of avoiding the intelligence trap. And finally, um, I would just say that actually curiosity is one of the best drivers and the, the most important traits for avoiding the intelligence trap. So, you know, we can measure curiosity with all of these scientific tests now, and you actually see that the more curious someone is, the less likely they are to suffer from something like motivated reasoning, because they just love finding out uh, new facts so much that they actually, they would rather read evidence that contradicts their point of view than not know that fact. And they will accept that fact just because it's so inherently interesting uh, to them to kind of pick up a new fact. Uh, so I would say to like really appreciate your curiosity and to try to cultivate that and to just feel that sense of wonder in the world and interest in the world and to to not feel like maybe you're too busy to kind of pursue an interest or to read an extra piece of information, but to actually realize that that is just that curiosity is so important for your overall um, mental health and uh, mental functioning and just for your the wisdom of your reasoning overall. I would say to just really value your curiosity. I love it. I love how we come back to a childlike state of curiosity, humility, and awe and wonder at the world. It's such a lovely way to be, you know, and and I think take (laughs) off blinkers and be a bit more childlike is a lovely message um, to help us move through the world better. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I've never really thought of it as being like a childlike state, but it really is. It's like trying to avoid the arrogance that we build up as an adult and to just be that in the same mindset as that little kid who, you know, yeah, doesn't have these blinkers and is just like longing to learn and discover and understand what's happening out there. Yeah, that's great. So what are you focusing on now? So you're a curious person and you work on really interesting projects. What are you currently diving into? A few different things, actually. So I'm writing um, a couple of pieces for New Scientist magazine, which is quite popular in the UK. Uh, one of them is looking at the the art and science of conversations, so how we can oh, uh, so exciting. have better conversations with other people. Um, I think that's very fun. Um, I'm also 
uh, trying to work on a proposal for a second book, um, which I won't say what that's about yet, but, you know, <laughs> fingers crossed that'll come off because um, I did love the whole process of writing the first one. So, Did it take you very long to do, to write your first book? It did, actually. Yeah, so it took me, yeah, about two years of the kind of writing and then you have a kind of year of the editing and building up to publication. So I actually started working on it in March 2016 you know, just before Brexit. And that's why I found it so interesting then to see how all these processes were playing out in British politics. So if we wanted to keep up to date with your wonderful publications, where can people go to follow you? Um, so they could uh, go to my website, which is davidrobson.me, or they could follow me on Twitter, where I'm d underscore a underscore Robson. And probably Twitter is the place where I share all of my new publications and you know I'm very happy to discuss them with readers as well through Twitter so that would be the place to find me. Fantastic. One last question. Any favorite books to recommend? Any favorite books? Let's see. Well you know one that really sticks in my mind that you know is really a model for me of good science writing but also I just find so fascinating is Cure by Joe Marchant. Um, So that looks very much at the things like the placebo effect in medicine and the mind-body connection. I like it because it kind of looks at these ideas that we had once considered to be like spiritual ideas about the mind and the body, but actually shows that there's a lot of value to them in medicine. Um, So that's a great one. I'm also just reviewing Possessed by Bruce Hood, and it's absolutely fantastic. It looks at why we, our relationship with our possessions and whether that is part of human nature or whether we can escape this kind of drive to own more things, which we know is kind of destroying the environment. Um, so that comes out in a few weeks' time, and I would absolutely recommend that one. Possessed by Bruce Hurd? Uh, Hood. Hood, Hood, sorry. Yeah. H-O-O-D. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I will put a link to all the books that you recommend and also to David's uh, site and resources at zoeyrath.com slash podcast slash David Robson. Uh, so if you're listening to the podcast, it'll be all in the show note descriptions right there. Your fingertips feel free to click on through. David, thank you so much for sharing all of your evidence-based wisdom <laughs> and the spirit of curiosity and humility that you bring to the table. And what a wonderful book, uh, The Intelligence Trap is. I so value it. And I'm so grateful for having you on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. They were great questions, really interesting discussions.